Hey, my name's Matt Kennedy, and this is the Steadfast Podcast. This podcast exists to use Bible study and theological teaching to encourage you to be steadfast in your faith. Thank you for taking time out of your day to check out the Steadfast Podcast. I hope today's episode is an encouragement to you. Last time we talked about Jesus interacting with some Pharisees. Remember, the huge life-altering healing of this paralytic man had just occurred. And seemingly, on his way out through the town, Jesus sees Levi, a tax collector, and he calls him to be his disciple. Remember, Levi was so pumped, he threw a party. And while everyone is having a good time, enjoying themselves, the Pharisees show up and they start making accusations, like the classic party poopers they could be. At the end of the day, we saw that Jesus came to make us new, not religious. Now, today's passage will also involve some Pharisees. They're going to be shockingly unhappy with Jesus. It's almost as if when Luke was writing the passage we covered last time, he immediately thinks, oh, wait a minute, let me tell you about another time the Pharisees were upset. And another. Here we go. Luke chapter 6, verse 1. Quote, on the Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? End quote. So Jesus and his disciples, they're strolling through some grain fields, right? And his disciples pick up some of the heads of grain, they rub them with their hands, and they have a little bit of a snack. But apparently the Pharisees were following like some creepers, and they were quick to make accusations. Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Were the disciples doing something wrong? Let's see. And the first thing for us to look at with this is, what is the Sabbath? Now, the Sabbath was a big deal. It is a big deal. For God decided to include it in the Ten Commandments. And when we start looking at the Ten Commandments, what we see is that it's actually the longest of all the Ten Commandments. Most of them are one short verse. But the Sabbath, it actually takes up four verses. You can find it in Exodus chapter 20, quote, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. End quote. So for six days the people were to do all their work. Everything they needed to do had to get done in those six 24-hour periods. And this was intended to mirror God's labor of creation, lasting six days and resting on the seventh. Of course, God didn't require rest. He's perfect. He's infinite. There is no limit to who he is, no limit to his power. And he didn't need 24 hours to do any of that stuff. But like a good father, a good God, he was modeling what we needed. Because while he is perfect, while he is infinite, we are very imperfect. We are very finite. We need rest. He knows this. The Sabbath was for sure a gift to men. But really, it's more than a gift. It's also an exercise of faith. I think Exodus chapter 16 will help us see this a little bit. So Exodus 16, verse 4, quote, Then the Lord said to Moses, 
Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. End quote. This is a lengthy passage and is worth your time reading later, but for now, I will give you a quick summary. You see, God made it rain bread. Doesn't that sound amazing? It's raining bread, and I bet it was really good bread too. But he made it rain bread so that the people could eat in the wilderness. His provision for them was also a test of faith. You see, they were only allowed to gather how much they could eat in a day. Otherwise, whatever was left over would produce worms. And as verse 20 says, it would stank. S-T-A-N-K, stank. But the sixth day of the week was different. They were supposed to collect enough for that day, but also the seventh day day, trusting that it would not breed worms, that it would not stank, for they were not to work on the Sabbath. You see, they hadn't received the law yet, but God was helping them see what he was about to do. He was preparing the way for them to keep the Sabbath, for them to honor the Sabbath. Any departure from what God had said would have had consequences to it, right? Like, so if they gathered too much, they'd get worms and stinky bread. But if they didn't do what they were supposed to, like if they didn't gather two days portions on the sixth day, well, they would be unintentionally fasting on the Sabbath, right? So it was an exercise of faith. The Sabbath is a gift. The Sabbath is an exercise of faith that we may trust the Lord that in our not working, he will make sure the sky doesn't fall down on us. God took the Sabbath so very seriously. There are Old Testament verses threatening death on those who break the Sabbath. Now, you do not need to be a Bible scholar or a theologian to really grasp the idea that if God attaches the death penalty to something, it's probably pretty serious, right? But the question at hand with our passage in Luke chapter 6 is really the question of what qualifies as work? What would be breaking the Sabbath? Hypothetically, say a group of guys, maybe they were former fishermen, maybe a retired tax collector and they're just for funsies. Say hypothetically, they were to walk through a field, pick a little bit of grain with their hands, they were to, you know, make a nice little snack. Would that be breaking the Sabbath? Now, to the Pharisees, this was them breaking the law, and there was no question for them. They put in oral tradition, also called a hedge around the law, or the tradition of elders. Jesus would call it the tradition of man. The idea with this hedge around the law, this tradition of elders, this tradition of men, the idea is that if they didn't break those laws that were so much more strict than God's laws, then they would not come close to breaking God's law. Like, let's say the speed limit on the street you live in is 45 miles per hour. So that's the law. So anything over 45 miles per hour in your car would be breaking the law, right? So you putting a hedge around the law would be like, okay, so the law says don't go over 45 miles per hour. I'm not going to go over 40 miles per hour because if I don't go over 40, I'm definitely not going over 45. That's kind of the idea here. But okay, so if you have declared I shall not go over 40 and the law actually says 45, if you go say 43, are you breaking the law? No, absolutely not. So even though this may seem prudent, it may seem wise, it may seem like a good barrier to put up there, what they're 
actually doing is they're making their words, their rules, their laws overrule the law of God. Doing this makes very religious people who are really proud of how religious they are. So to the Pharisees, the disciples, they sinned. But according to the law of God, they are innocent. In this passage, we are going to see a very interesting response from Jesus. But before we get there, I want to have a little detour, a little side note. So this passage, it's about the Sabbath. But in case anyone is wondering if this passage qualifies as stealing grain from someone else's field, I want to clarify, it does not. And that's why you don't see the Pharisees challenging it. Because the law actually permits taking grain from someone else's field. I'll show you. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, quote, If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain, end quote. There's also a similar law about vineyards. And the point behind them is that God made sure the lowly of society were taken care of. The idea here is take what you need to survive. Make sure you don't go hungry. You're not starving. But don't take so much that you financially profit from it. Survive, good to go. Profit financially, that is theft. So what they are doing by just taking handfuls there and rubbing it together with their hands and eating that as a a small snack or even small meal, that is allowed by the law. So they're good to go there. Now, that's our detour. Back to the response that Jesus gives the Pharisees. We're going to pick up in verse 3. Quote, and Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. End quote. Jesus is referencing 1 Samuel 21, verses 1-6. through 6. In this part of the biblical narrative, Saul, who was king at the time, he wants to kill David. Fortunately, David's BFF, also Saul's son, named Jonathan, warns David so he can escape. David heads to a place called Nob. He sees a priest called Ahimelech. And Ahimelech, he knows something's going on. He ain't no fool. He understands something is off. But at the end of the day, he agrees to give David the special bread meant for the priest. As Jesus said, this was not lawful. Throwing this example before the Pharisees was very intentional. Like, Luke doesn't record any response from the Pharisees, so maybe they were speechless. One thing is for sure, they would not have had anything negative or disparaging to say about King David. I mean, he is the man after God's own heart. Far be it from the Pharisees or the teachers of the law to say anything negative about the king who was after God's own heart. Perhaps, if they were not speechless, they would say something like, But David was the anointed one. Samuel had anointed him to become king of God's people. That's so different. It was different. Because you see, David actually broke the law. The disciples, not so much. But I don't think that's the biggest point here. Jesus doesn't make the argument or seek to debate at all. He had a bigger goal. Look again what he says in verse 5. Quote, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, end quote. And don't forget, the Son of Man, that's a reference to a prophecy in the book of Daniel. We've discussed that before. We won't spend time discussing it again. But the second part of the verse says, is Lord of the Sabbath. Who would be Lord of the Sabbath? Would it not be the giver of the law? Would anyone in the world, or outside the world for that matter, be qualified 
to be Lord over the law other than the giver of the law, which is God himself. The bigger point here is that Jesus is God. He is God in the flesh. So if they had responded to Jesus, referencing David, but he is the Lord anointed, Jesus could have so easily said, and perhaps is intentionally saying, and yet the one before you is greater than David. One reminder for us here is that we do need to keep the Sabbath. God knows our needs. He knows that this is what we need. We need rest. We are limited beings who are in need of breaks. He also knows that we need to trust him to be God and understand, hey, we are not God. When we take the Sabbath, it is a simple acknowledgement that God is God and we are not. And I know so often we can say, but I can't take a day. I'm too busy. There's too many things that rely on me. I have too much on my shoulders. And if that's our answer, we for sure need the Sabbath. If we think we're too busy for the Sabbath, that is a telltale sign we are in desperate need of a Sabbath. Because again, I'm going to keep saying this, we're not God. We have limits. So what do you need to do? What action steps do you need to take to free up time in your life so that you can take a Sabbath? For some of us, we just need to understand that the world is going to keep on spinning if we take a break. Look, a sense of responsibility is fantastic. But let's just make sure that pride is not keeping us from obeying God's word. Because remember, God is God. You are not. Let's keep going in verse 6. Quote, On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. End quote. Remember, it was the custom of Jesus to spend a good amount of time in the synagogue. It was a priority of his. It was part of the rhythm of his life. So he's teaching. He is opening up the Old Testament, opening up God's word and expounding it upon it for the people. He's teaching and he notices that there is someone there with a withered hand. Some translations will say shriveled instead of withered. But essentially what we're saying is his hand is useless. It's wasting away. And now it's also worth noting that it is his right hand. To them in their culture, the two hands are not equal. The right hand was the one of honor and strength. And we will see that sneak into some Old Testament passages. You may skip right over them. It'd be easy to do. But here's an example. Psalm 44 verse 3, quote, For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them, end quote. Luke is highlighting it was the man's right hand, and that is to highlight his desperate and weak state. He is highlighting that this man really needs a touch from Jesus. He really needs help. He is in a bad way. So verse 7, quote, And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. End quote. We see yet again that these religious people are watching Jesus. Why? Because they want to accuse Jesus of some sin. They're so skeptical. Their hearts aren't even cracked open a little bit to the possibility that maybe, just maybe, Jesus is who he says he is. But like, consider this. They keep rejecting Jesus. This is a common theme in the book of Luke and the other gospels. The Pharisees, the scribes, they reject him time after time after time. But yet, God keeps giving them opportunities to believe. God is patient and he is kind and he continues to put them in situations where they had the 
opportunity to witness something amazing, but the hardness of their hearts keeps rejecting it. Look, we must not make the same mistake the Pharisees made. When God gives us opportunities to believe, let us take those opportunities. Let us rejoice and be grateful in what he has done and what he is doing. Let's keep going in verse 8. Quote, but he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. End quote. Jesus knows that they're watching, that they're trying to get something to use against him. So he boldly calls the man with the withered hand forward. He boldly calls this man who is in need of a touch from Jesus, who is in need of Jesus intervening in his life. And in this moment before this audience that is skeptical and ready to pounce, it's almost as if Jesus is communicating, oh, you came to see something. I will show you something that you have never seen before. In front of everyone, knowing how the Pharisees are, Jesus asked this very pointed question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? The man's hand would not have turned life-threatening overnight. It could have been healed the next day, and he would have lived. But how Jesus asked this double question should clue us in that there's something deeper going on. He's trying to make a deeper point. To do good versus to do harm. To save versus to destroy. If there's an opportunity to do someone good and we refuse to do it, that's harm. That is sin. That is wrong. That is to destroy. That is to affiliate with the enemy himself. One difference in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness is that God's kingdom seeks to do good. They don't seek to do harm. God's kingdom seeks to save. They don't seek to destroy. So for Jesus, our king, to see a prime opportunity to do good for someone and to refuse to do that good, that's unthinkable. Jesus came to do good. He came to save. Now, I wonder if the half-brother of Jesus, if he ever heard about this teaching, I wonder that because years later, James would write a point that sounds so similar to this. James 4.17, quote, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin, end quote. Look, let us keep our eyes open. Let us be a people who look to those who are around us and the good we may do for them. Let us be imitators of our Savior and let us never be content to put off doing good to another day because here's the thing. If we put off good to another day, that good that we were going to do probably never going to happen. This requires us to be so intentional. Look, I know we get busy. I know we get self-absorbed. And so we can miss so much of what's happening around us. We are so primarily concerned with our own things and our own schedule and our own obligations that we can forget that we are called to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that requires us to live with our eyes open and our hearts wide open to the needs of the hurting around us. The application of this is so very simple. It's elementary. I didn't say it was easy, but it is simple. 
when we see a need, when we know the right thing in a situation, do it. Don't put it off till tomorrow. Don't procrastinate doing good. Take the opportunity. Imitate Jesus and take the opportunity. We got one more verse. Verse 11, quote, But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. End quote. Isn't this the heartbreaking part of the story? They got to see the grace of God, and it filled them with fury. They saw a man with a withered hand, and they saw Jesus restore this hand perfectly. They saw clear evidence that Jesus is who he says he is, and yet they are filled with fury. In a different conversation with the Pharisees, Jesus said, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We can be so focused on being so religious, yet God calls us to be merciful. Yes, He desires, and He delights in our obedience. But part of that obedience is showing mercy. Today, as I close this episode, I leave you with the same simple challenge. What does it mean when he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice? Listen, here's the final question. Do you delight in showing mercy like our Savior and King Jesus delights in showing mercy? Thanks for listening to the Steadfast Podcast. I want to remind you that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Paul wrote this, quote, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. End quote. So in light of biblical truth, let us be steadfast, immovable. Let us remember that through Jesus, not one labor is in vain, not one trial is in vain, not one effort in all of our lives is in vain. Because he gives purpose. And that purpose rings through eternity. That's all I've got for you today. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, if you've got questions you would like answered, you can email me at matt at steadfastpodcast.com.